0: So, if you've got a Bible, grab it out, turn with me there. Uh, While we're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of insight into the situation, the background of this book, and then over the next, I think it's uh, about 10 or 11 weeks, we're going to be walking through this book together. As we read this book of Philippians, we're reading what is actually a letter from the Apostle Paul and his good friend Timothy to a church family in the city of Philippi, which is located in what is known as Macedonia. And uh, all through this letter, what we're going to read about is how our faith and identity, being in God, and as we partner with him through that faith and identity, brings us to a place where we can have a joyful, contented, generous life. And so we're sort of kicking off this fresh fall season with that idea in mind. Now this letter was penned in about 62 AD while Paul was in prison awaiting a conviction that could potentially mean his execution. Paul's sort of been going around defying the Roman authorities by preaching the name of Jesus, and because of that, he is in prison. Now we're not sure which prison it is, because Paul went to a whole bunch of them, and so we. But what we know is he's either in Rome or in the city of Ephesus, sort of awaiting this news. And so when we read this letter, that's really important to know, because what we're reading is a death row letter. I mean, this is the words that someone wants to articulate to his church family in Philippi when he's awaiting a possible execution. I mean, these words are going to be full of important things. We'll actually see, this is one of those books of the Bible that probably has... Uh, one of the most collections of one-liner Bible memory verses. If you grew up doing that, that you will remember. There's going to be all sorts. through chapter one, two, three, four, so on. And what happens is Paul is just trying to download everything positive he has and can say about this church and who God is and ultimately who these people are in Jesus. And all through it. He talks about joy and contentedness. Now, if you want to know more about the background of the situation of the Church of Philippi, I'd encourage you this week to go back to Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, we read all about the inception Of This church and I'm not going to go into all of it, but let me just summarize in about 50 AD Paul was traveling around trying to proclaim the good news about Jesus Paul's had a amazing life-changing encounter with Jesus and that has set his life on this trajectory where he knows he's just going to live the rest of it on the road sharing about Jesus. But in about fifty eighty, he kind of runs into this situation where he's trying to figure out where do I go next. And so at first he thinks, I'm, I'm going to go over towards Asia and things come up. And he's getting blocked by God from going there. And he's got this other idea. I'm going to go over here. And God says, no, you're not going to go over there. And then one evening as he sleeps, Paul gets this vision where he needs to go to Macedonia. And so Paul, being sort of the the responsive guy, goes, all right, let's go. And he travels to the city of Philippi, which is on this important sort of route for the whole Roman world to sort of transfer information and goods and military from the area in Rome over into the Asian-occupied lands that the Romans controlled. And so Paul's planted in this city, but when he shows up, things aren't quite as he expected. Everywhere Paul's gone to this point, as he's pulled into town, what he does is he goes, my strategy will be that I'm going to go to the local synagogue where the Jewish people hang out because they have the Jewish scriptures, and I'm going to explain to them how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies they've been waiting for, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the chosen one of God who has come. But in Philippi, there's no synagogue. And there being no synagogue tells us that there's probably not even ten Jewish believers in the city because that's how many were needed to have a synagogue. Instead, what Paul finds is a group of ladies huddled down by the river outside the city wall worshiping God. And so it's them that he first goes to. And we see the first person he leads to faith is this woman named Lydia who will go on to lead the church. He leads a a number of other people to faith. And we have this sort of new church that's established. And Paul is really invested in them until the Roman magistrate says, get out of town or we're going to kill you. Paul senses that it's his time to go. And so he takes off. But while he has to leave from the church of Philippi, it sort of occupies this really special spot in his heart. And we're going to see that uh, this is probably actually Paul's favorite church. Now, I don't know if he's allowed to have favorite churches. as an apostle who established all of these ones. But it's very clear from some of the indications in the writing that this one may be just maybe really actually holds that special seat in his heart. And we're going to get to that, actually, in the first passage that we read today. But out of Paul's love for the church with this impending potential execution on his mind, he writes to them to express his appreciation for this church. He wants to encourage them. He wants to tell them about what a full life they can lead. Because even in prison, he's living a full life because of his relationship with Jesus and he just wants to encourage them with that and so as we go through this series that's what we're sort of walking into and that's going to be sort of the theme that carries us through this idea that if we're trying to pursue a good contented generous joyous life we got to start with Jesus and we'll see how that frames all sorts of circumstances But with that background in mind, let's kick off by reading Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. This is sort of the introductory section where Paul talks about their partnership together and he prays for the church. It begins, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just stop there for just a second because already Paul is doing something interesting here. I don't know about you, when I read this, it's not particularly interesting to me. But when I understand the customs of Paul's day, I realize this is really an odd opening. In the 1st century there was a traditional method of writing letters and they all started in the exact same way. I got an example for you on the screen. On the screen you'll see that whenever there was a verse, it would or a letter, it would say what the sender's name was, to the recipient's name and then just the word greetings. It was really expensive to write and send letters in Paul's day. And so you wanted to just be really clear and concise so that you could get to the body of the text. I mean, these people would have to hire uh, scribes who could write and translate the thoughts of the speaker. Most likely, as Paul and Timothy are writing this letter, what's really happening is they're sitting in a room with someone dictating the words they want to say, and because you're paying for a word count, you want to keep it real brief. And so as soon as we get into this opening and we see that there's a really long introduction to the letter, Paul means something. Paul wants them to grab a really important key to his letter right off the the top at the beginning you know I might have written if I was writing this letter Kyle to my church family Emmanuel greetings but instead Paul writes Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons so Paul and Timothy begin with this idea of not just saying their names which they would have been known they, they planted the church. They were the founders. They led the church leader to faith. They, they still don't just say, hey, it's Paul and Timothy, guys. They say, hey, it's Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. What's interesting here, even beyond that, is that this word servants doesn't just mean servants as in, like, I'm here to serve Jesus. But the word here could actually better be translated slaves. We are slaves to Jesus. Now, that's a little bit weird. I mean, slavery, not really a great connotation to most of us, right? We picture American South. uh, We picture really awful situations and circumstances when we hear slavery. But those first century Jewish people would have heard something differently, they would have heard of something that was much more of a common relationship in the day. Slavery was quite a bit more common than we would think because what people would do is they would enter into slavery contracts with wealthy people in their communities so that those people could pay their debts. They would become slaves so that they could avoid penalty and punishment and hopefully earn one day a sense of freedom and a new lease on living. So when Paul says, hey, me and Timothy are slaves of Jesus, what he's saying is we are people who have had our debt paid off by Jesus and we're living in freedom, doing his thing. What Jesus wants, what we want. Where Jesus is moving, we're moving with him. And so Paul is building a sense of identity. And then he goes from beyond that and he says, actually, you people are unique as well. He calls the people in Philippi, holy people. Now again, this is a bit of a different word than we might think. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word holy, I think of like the Pope. I think of, Mother Teresa is this saint, I think, of sort of these better-than-me people. But that's not at all what Paul meant as he speaks this. Instead, what he means when he calls them holy is, hey, you people who are set apart for God's purposes. Theologian Karl Barth explains it this way. He says, holy people are unholy people who have nevertheless as such been singled out, claimed and requisitioned by God for his control, for his use, for himself who is holy. Their holiness is and remains in Christ Jesus. It is in him that they are holy and it is from this point of view that they are dressed as such in no other respect. And so what Paul and Timothy are doing as they they say this, and they'll say, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What they're doing is they're anchoring all of this relationship that they have in Jesus. Paul doesn't come in and go, hey, I'm the big shot who planted this church. He doesn't go, hey, you should look at me because I'm the apostle. He doesn't write, hey, listen up church because you're these people who are lowly. He says, hey church, I want to talk to you out of a place of peace and love because together we are rooted in Jesus. Together we are bound as one by this thing we're doing, setting our lives aside for the purpose of God, what God wants to do. And it's from here that that, that, that he's trying to awaken his reader's mind. This is why he's breaking the custom. He's awaking their mind to begin to think, what framework is Paul starting with as we read all the rest? As Paul talks about how he has a joyous and content life, even though he's suffering in chains in prison, it's all because of their faith in Jesus. As we struggle through and go through these trials... It's okay because we have Jesus. As we relate with one another, as we seek unity, it's all because we're centered in Jesus. If we're going to study the book of Philippians, we have to understand Paul's basic premise a life of contentedness is found in Jesus. If you're coming to church today because you're going, maybe this is the place that's going to have answers for me so that my life's not such a train wreck. You have to understand the basic place that we come to. We come from that whole approach, not because that's the end goal, but because everything starts in Jesus. And we realize that as we root our lives in the person of Jesus and the work of his Holy Spirit, for the glory of God the Father, our life has meaning. It has purpose. It has direction. It gets filled up with joy there's no other way for life to be if those are the things we're looking for and so Paul sets up the letter with this and then he launches in to a next little section with that in mind saying I am just so thankful for our partnership and I want to pray this for you let's read that in verses 3 to 11 Paul continues on after he started the letter. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer So after Paul's connected with the believers in Philippi about their common ground for living and relating, he goes into two things. First, he just wants to to appreciate them and praise them for living rightly as they follow Jesus. And then from that place, he goes, this isn't enough. This is awesome, but I want more for you. And so he prays for their continued growth in Jesus. This is another clue for us about what we should be thinking as we approach this book. Paul wants people who follow Jesus to know this isn't just about having the right knowledge and being able to answer the right questions. Being a Christian is about pursuing and living actively as we seek to fulfill the mission of God in the world. We seek to be set apart. We seek to keep being holy and more and more holy, more and more set apart. Not better than, but different than the world. The theological word for this is sanctification. To be in a process of being set apart For God, This is a lot of what Paul will say. And he'll say that as we become more and more set apart, as we become more more unique in the world by finding our identity in Jesus and following him, we will continue to be sanctified. And he reinforces that there, right? In verse 3 and 6, I thank God every time I remember you. uh, And all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because, why am I joyful about you? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. Now, I've never planted a church, but I get this this sense from Paul of real excitement and appreciation. You can almost hear Paul being like, man, oh man, I am just so pumped that this thing that we had going 10 to 12 years ago is still going. I'm just so excited that that all of you who once didn't know Jesus now know Jesus and you're partnered with me in helping other people know Jesus so that their lives will be changed. I am just so thrilled that you didn't just keep gathering for a little while for nostalgia's sake, but you keep on building and growing. You know, sure, Paul's probably excited a little bit about the nostalgia of planting this church, He's human, right? He probably is thinking about the great moments that he had with his friends there and the amazing stories of, of how people's lives change. We know that there's a story of a woman who was, who was possessed and then she ends up finding freedom in Jesus from the situation that she was in. And, and Paul surely is thinking, man, that's great. But it goes beyond that. He goes, man, what I'm really excited about is that it didn't just stop there and you didn't just stop thinking, wow, how wonderful is this for me? But you actually invested yourselves in making sure that this spread. And the people of Philippi did something amazing. They didn't just make sure that it spread in their own city, but they made sure that they were investing in its spread around the world. We see that Paul actually praises the people of Philippi many times through this book for their investment financially and relationally in what God was doing all over the world. In fact, when Paul wrote the letter, his second letter to the church in Corinth, he actually used the people of Philippi as a positive example in chapter 8 verse 2 to 5. Uh, which will come up on the screen. You'll, you'll see that that he talks about them overflowing with joy because what of God is doing, and then out of their poverty, welling up in rich generosity. You know, we can wrongfully read the Book of Philippians if we leave out this thing. We can think, well, they had Lydia who was their church leader. She was this wealthy lady, and she gave to missions, and that was amazing. And that was amazing. But what he says is, it went beyond that. Even the poorest of the poor in this community invested in to what God was doing. Thank you for doing that, Paul says. This is amazing. It shows that you're growing. It shows that you really have a sense of what being in relationship with Jesus is all about. In doing this, Paul says, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to us also. Paul's saying that it's worth celebrating when people invest in the expansion of the kingdom of God, both where they live and around the world. What's interesting here is that Paul is actually flipping the narrative from what we think church should be into something very different. You may or may not know this. We, we have in our church, our full legal church name, the name of uh, the, the network of churches that we're partnered with called the fellowship. The word fellowship is the same word as partnership here in this text. But strangely, our word fellowship has begun to mean something very different than what Paul meant when he wrote his letters to places like the church in Philippi. What comes to your mind when you think of the word fellowship? Well, some of us, maybe, first, or first book or movie of Lord of the Rings. For others, maybe you've been growing up in church for a long time, and you've heard this word fellowship get thrown around. And, and what I think of from growing up from a preteen to now in the church is having coffee with other Christians. Like that's, that's how I've always heard fellowship used in church. Oh, we're going to have some fellowship time. We're going to go down to the fellowship hall and we're all going to sit around these old ancient heavy wood tables and we're going to have our coffee to drink and we're going to talk about life together. Now, don't get me wrong. That's a wonderful thing. I mean, we love as a church socializing. You can tell by my body I love to eat with people. I mean, this is a great thing. We're having a barbecue after church. By the way, everyone's invited to stay. No charge. Come on. Let's eat. Let's talk. Let's spend time together. Let's have community. This is a wonderful thing. But let us not think that that's what Paul means when he says fellowship and partnership. What Paul says is the true mark of believers gathering together isn't having a good cup of coffee. It's being invested with one another, with all that we have to bring in our energy, financially, relationally, together, bringing the gospel, the good news of Jesus to the world. Paul says if we want to continue to grow, if we want to celebrate what God's doing, this is what we will do. We will link arms together and advance in the name of Jesus into the world so that there will be no doubt about what we're doing here as we gather together. Paul says that's something that's worth celebrating. And it's a good question for us to then reflect on that thing and just say, what are we doing with our time? What are we doing when we say we're fellowshipping? We can plan, we can have great conversations, we can encourage over a cup of coffee, but as long as it's pointed towards the right thing. We need to be partnered in this way so that we can be celebrated in the same way Paul celebrated the church in Philippi. I want to hear one day God saying, yes, I am just so thankful for what happened at Emmanuel because you partnered together in the advance of the gospel in Abbotsford and around the world thank you for doing that most important thing. We see that that Paul jumps on from there to sort of continue to reinforce these sorts of things. And and, and he explains about how ultimately good of a thing this is in verse 7 and 8. He shares his affection. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you. So this isn't a proud thing. This is like, Paul's checking his pride. He used to be a really proud guy and and was tied up in all the wrong things. But he knows that that wasn't right. And he says, but I know this one's right. I know it's good to have you in my heart, whether I'm in chains, which I am now in prison, or whether I'm out in the world defending and confirming the gospel. Because all of you are sharing in God's grace with me. And God himself testifies for how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Those last few words, really important here. The affection of Christ Jesus. Here Paul is pouring out more affection for the church in Philippi than he does for any other church that he writes a letter for. This is why I think Philippi is his favorite church. Why are they his favorite? Yeah, you know, there's probably some that they built together. Perhaps it's that they've stuck with Paul through thick and thin and supported him in his missionary journey, but it's actually more than that. Paul says, I am so proud of you. I love you so much because God has clearly restructured my thinking to allow me to see how much he loves you. I see you with the affection that Jesus has for you. I see what you're doing, and as I see it, I see it through the lens of God's eyes. And I'm just overwhelmed with joy because he's bursting with joy as he thinks about you and me and what we're doing together. Alec Moiter, who's an schol- Irish scholar, writes about the, this magnitude of Paul's expression of affection here. He writes, it expresses a yearning that is as much physical as it is mental. A longing love which moves the whole inner being. But what a remarkable expression Paul uses. He loves them in the inner being of Christ Jesus. Certainly this means that he patterns his love for them on that day of Christ, but the wording demands something more than the notion of imitation. Paul is saying that he is so advanced in his union with Christ that it is as if Christ himself were expressing his love through Paul. Two hearts are beating as one here. Indeed, one heart, the greater, has taken over the emotional constitution of Christ himself has taken possession of his very servant. We're supposed to hear this as the word of God being spoken for what is good and what brings joy and what gives life meaning. And it's out of that that Paul just can't help but pray in verses 9 to 11. He just, he sensed that he's got this leading from the Holy Spirit. And so he says this, and it's as if God is praying for his own people here. My prayer for you is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul and Jesus' deepest desire for these people, and ultimately by extension for you, and me is that we would keep on growing in love for God and one another and the mission that that brings. That we would have knowledge and insight, that we would be able to discern together how we should go so that we can be blameless, so that no one can say, hey, they wasted their fellowship time. So no one could say, hey, that church never did a thing. Or that person, I never really knew what they believed. I didn't know how they spent their life. I just couldn't get a picture of what was going on deep inside by the way they were living. But instead, so that God would be glorified. So that people would praise him because of how we lived. Because of how we center ourselves in him. And devote everything within you and me, to advancing the gospel in our world. Paul's not just saying this to the Philippians. He's saying it to you and I too. You know, if you ever read the scriptures like me, sometimes you're like wondering, like, why did God, why did God do this? Like, why did, why did God include this in his word? I mean, uh, these apostles that wrote the New Testament, they wrote many other letters Which aren't contained here. But God gave the wisdom and insight to to people to sit and discern that this book would have meaning for all generations to understand what it means to be a Christian and to live the fullness and flourishing life that God would have for us so that He would be glorified and praised in all things, in all of our beings. In everything that we do together corporately and individually. I'm so thankful that, that Paul wrote this letter by the guidance of God. Because it allows us to think about those things. It's going to encourage us to think about unity. Not unity in, in agreeing on every single thing. But unity in understanding that at the core. We are all people who are set apart for God's purposes. It's going to give us a sense of how we can grow in our sanctification, how we can grow in our love and our knowledge of him and how we're supposed to discern the things that we're doing. And as we give ourselves away more and more, we will see the beauty of what God is doing. And there's a promise right in this passage, and I kind of just blew by it while we read it, but I want to come back to it, that can help us because... Honestly, sometimes we look at Christians in the church and we go, wow, what a failure. What are they doing? What am I doing? Honestly, I blow it all the time. And I sit and I think, man, I'm supposed to live up to this, like, like I I can't do that on my own. I love y'all, but as I look at y'all, I know we can't do this on our own. We can't live up to this way of being On our own. But Paul, knowing that we would ask that question, plants in verse 6 this beautiful thing. He said, we are being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What God has started in each one of our lives He will complete. When we're scared to advance the gospel because we think we're going to flub and we're going to screw up, we need to remember this thing. That what God is doing in those people's lives, we can't screw up. Because he's going to bring it to completion. The reason we have confidence to partner together, even when we look around and go, man, what's that person doing? is because we know that God is working in them and he's working in us and he's going to complete the thing that he started. Is it all going to end today and we're all going to be perfectly sanctified and holy and do all the right things? No. It's going to continue, so don't get discouraged. Paul's already told us the promise. It will be complete. It's probably not going to be until Jesus comes back again or until we're dead. But he will make sure It is complete. Long before you or I ever breathed, Jesus came to this earth to live and die so that he could enable us to receive him by faith so that he could begin transforming you and me to complete his mission here on earth. And there's an invitation within. Will we step into this? Will we choose to make our fellowship about more than coffee? But will we choose to partner together to give everything we have together sacrificially so that what God has started, we can be a part of? He's going to complete it if we're not part of it. He's going to keep doing it, but we have a privilege to being a part of how he wants to complete it. Will we choose that? Will we receive this gift Will we receive the joy that God wants to have in us as we pursue these great things? As we take this encouragement and prayer that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, I want us today to just stop and think, how do I apply this to me? Where could I set myself aside and apart for him in a unique way today? For me as a pastor, Paul's prayer has encouraged me to shape my prayers in a new way for our church family. I pray for our church every day, but this is encouraging me to pray in just a, in a unique way around the discernment, wisdom, unity, and sanctification of us together as a church family. Perhaps for you, there's an invitation into uh, allowing the teaching that you receive to move from your head to your heart and begin to actually apply the things you've been learning from God for a long time. Maybe there's an invitation for you to partner in a new way, to serve alongside others who are advancing the mission through the church. You can serve physically, you can serve financially, You can serve by encouraging one another. How is God asking for that? And don't ever sell yourself short. Remember, the church in Philippi was the poorest that a church could be. But it says that together they gave extravagantly. And because of that, the work of God was done. I want to share with you, you know, I I don't want to just pump you up on this and then leave you hanging. But I want you to actually receive an opportunity to hear about some of the amazing work that God is doing in our church family. I'm going to pray. We're going to take a moment for us to just pause and consider how can I partner with what God is doing here at Emmanuel, and then we're going to watch a video. This is a, a, a few minutes long, but it's an amazing story of how God stirred in the heart of someone in our student ministry to begin to partner with God in what he was doing, to see the work of God begin to be complete in the life of one of their friends. So let me pray and then take an opportunity to just reflectively think about what the Holy Spirit could be leading you in partnership. And we'll watch that video, then we'll respond by singing together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you for your word to us. God, I thank you for what you're doing In the world, God, that it wasn't just back in 62 AD, but God, but that it's here and now in 2023. God, I thank you that there are people in our church who are partnered together, who invest sacrificially. God, I pray that they would be blessed that even just hearing this, it wouldn't be some type of condemnation or guilt. But instead, would they be able to receive it as hearing you say, I am pleased. I am thankful for you. Lord, for those of us who need to be challenged, again, would it not be guilt, but would it be an invitation into partnership with you and with one another? God, I thank you that in your word it says you bring everybody into a church family who is needed to build up your church and build out your kingdom. And so, God, I thank you that we have everything we need in this church family to see your kingdom come to see your will be done in Abbotsford as it is in heaven. So Holy Spirit, as we take a moment of reflection, we ask that you just speak into the deepest part of each one of us exactly what we need to receive. Encourage us, challenge us, inspire us, convict us. Holy Spirit, lead us into what we need to receive. My name's Callie Sway.